Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Occupy Voices. Uh, we're no longer the Occupy Show. This is Voices Network. Um, we are once again doing a simulcast, and the simulcast this week is with Sam Richards with North Star Post. Introduce us on your side on the simulcast, please, Sam. Yeah, thank you, Terry. Uh, this is Sam Richards, and this is actually a bonus episode of North Star Radio Hour. All right. Well, we've got a lot to cover, like always, and not enough time to do it. So we'll jump right into it. This show is Occupy Nuance, and we'll have a link up to the etymology of nuance, where that word comes from. And it basically is a French word, uh, shade or color, um, uh, which, which comes back further in time to shade, goes back further in time to cloud, which is kind of interesting. And goes back further than that to veil and fog. And that's kind of the weird thing about nuance is a complicated issue. Sometimes things aren't quite as cut and dried as it sometimes appears. Uh, we've been on this story today where uh, the uh, the Hammond brothers were pardoned today. And uh, we had done a show back, oh, four years or so ago where we were presenting some information that was news to a lot of people back then and possibly still is now, that the story isn't quite as cut and dried as it appears, um, that there are nuances to this. And in that show, we talked about uh, uh, that the Hammonds aren't the only people who have problems with BLM, um, that, that also there were the Dan sisters I did uh, did you get a chance to look at the link on the Dan sisters? Yeah, I did real briefly. Uh they're kind of interesting too because nobody knew about that when it happened it seemed like. It was news to me when we did the show 4 years ago. Uh they were uh two sisters uh part of the Shoshone tribe. And they were actually related to one of the guests that we were talking to. And that was taking place during the Bundy ranch mess. Uh, but again, the, the point was it was kind of nuanced, that it wasn't as cut and dried as it appeared to be, mm-hmm. that there was, uh, there were some issues there with the, the Dan sisters. So, right. that's everybody, where we're, go ahead. Oh, everybody in the media, it seems like, is preferring a narrative of just left versus right or liberal versus conservative. And when you get into these kind of almost generational struggles, it's always a bit more complicated than that. Yeah. I, uh, from the reactions I've been getting today, uh, people prefer it simple or fact-free. Mm-hmm. Has been kind of the problem I've been running into today. Um, people seem to get fairly bent out of shape when you present the facts that don't fit their narrative. Um, so what we're going to be talking about during this show is the concept of some stories aren't quite as simple as you would want them to be. They are nuanced. <laughs> um, one of those stories we're going to be talking about is uh, Selhawk. We'll kind of go ahead and straight on into that issue, and it's something you've been covering. You broke the story, FBI Spice Guys, uh, a couple of years ago. Was that three years ago now? Uh, yeah, was it 2018? So, yeah, that was May of 2015. So, wow, I... That flew by. It's already been three years, and I still think that was probably my biggest story. Um, 
exposing the hundreds of airplanes that the FBI is using, mostly Cessnas, but others as well. Uh, and at the time, it looked like they were mostly flying above major metropolitan areas um, all across the country. But it's really it's really spread out from there. And I'm um, happy that that story took off in the way it did, because I never intended that when I was just posting the images on Twitter uh, in the first place. You were doing a great job with that story. And, and again, I was horrified by, like a week later, some of corporate news jumped on the story like they had broken it, uh, which goes against all the rules of reporting. Yeah. If you're going to, if you're going to stomp on somebody else's story, at least have the courtesy to say that the person that broke it is the person who broke it. <laughs> Sam broke it. I saw you do it when you were doing it. Well, thank so, you. <laughs> yeah, that, um, that was sort of frustrating because I posted the story um, after people on Twitter that saw the images because I, I, originally I was just posting screenshots uh, and using the hashtag FBI Sky Spies based off of the research I found um, just, you know, going over flight registration information for these aircraft. And people on Twitter urged me to write up something quick and brief and post it onto medium.com, which is an open blogging website. Um, and then obviously from there, it, it spun into the North Star Post and all these other projects. But you're right. It was just over a week later, the uh, Associated Press put out their expose and claimed that they broke the story first when I, in fact, posted all the tail numbers, correctly linked it to the FBI and also speculated as to the equipment on board, which was proven years later to be correct in Freedom of Information Act requests. Um, and there was a little communication back and forth with their editors about that. Um, they were working on the story since before I posted anything, but theirs wasn't online until a week, almost a week and a half after my story was. Um, and that story, at that time, it had over 40,000 hits. So it's not like it was just a little speculative blog. It was a thing that was rolling out of uh, rolling out of the gate really quick. So that was a, that was pretty frustrating. Um, but obviously, since then, other media has been doing a good job following up on it. But I still claim to be the first one, person to break that story. Well, that used to be called a scoop, and that <laughs> one was yours. Well, uh, thank you. <laughs> and a fine one. Thanks. Um, the. Uh, I think that also was, was that Baltimore you were watching when you originally were posting about it? Yeah, that was one of the cities. Um, and I know the Wall Street Journal posted about a spy plane that they, I think they linked it to the U.S. Marshal Service above that uh, Freddie Gray Black Lives Matter protest. But they they didn't follow through with their investigating or their investigation and find all the other planes um, and talk about the equipment on board. It was kind of just a one-off story. so. Um, yeah, that was, that was one of the cities, but there were a ton of other ones. Um, it's pretty much any major metropolitan area in the country. There were planes above those cities when I was posting these images. And, uh, it, it was just interesting to see this happening, especially, you know, after we all knew about, uh, Edward Snowden and mass surveillance to see it just so plainly over American cities in American soil. Um, and seeing how many people below would be affected by that type of surveillance, it was a huge scoop. And I just, I just put it on Twitter because I thought I was doing it a public service. I didn't really think I would be, you know, becoming an investigative journalist because of that at the time. But I'm happy that's what happened. Well, we're certainly glad to have you. The last <laughs> show that we simulcast was with Nico House. Mm -hmm. uh, that show was Millennial Voices. 
And uh, that was the, the upshot of that show was it is kind of a nuanced story once again. But the largest voting block in America now is no longer the baby boomers like it's been for years and years and years. It's now the millennials, your mm-hmm. age people. Um, so in a sense, we're kind of celebrating passing the torch here. <laughs> and I, for one, am glad to be passing the torch because I'd like to be through with this and fishing somewhere, as I've said <laughs> before. Um, but we've uh, we've got some work to do before I hang up my headphone and move it on down the line, it looks like. Uh, maybe next week. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, you got to hang so, on longer uh, than that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, so far, so good. Uh, anyway, we uh, that there are a lot of millennial voices who are stepping up to the plate here. I uh, I actually had training as a reporter. Uh, started in radio news back in 1975, mm-hmm. uh, and then went to a newspaper, medium market newspaper, for a little while. Till I got uh, well, I wasn't really fired. I was just a reduction in force of one over a front page story that I wrote. Uh, so, so I got my introduction to communications is is not necessarily a stable place to figure on your career being. Um, sometimes having a really good story is not enough to keep you working for the uh, outlet that you were working for. And that's kind of a, a nuance all of its own. One of the strange things there is uh, you didn't really have a background in journalism or reporting at all. Did you? you were in the military. Yeah, yeah, I was. And I actually got into media basically through activism. Um, I was pretty heavily involved in Occupy Minnesota. You know, I initially joined as a live streamer, but through that I also started organizing things too and participating in all the other committees and stuff. But my main focus was in the uh, independent media aspect. Um, And I got to travel around the country to other protests and, you know, see the power of uh, citizen journalism at the time, which sparked my interest and it just it led me to the correct people and including you um and so i really got to learn the ropes and figure out you know that there is a lot of power when the people have correct information they generally make the right choices so um i I, that's kind of where north star post came from i wanted to present information uh that wasn't found elsewhere in you know major media publications and there was uh as little ideological spin as possible um, and so that's that's kind of where things went. And the FBI story fell into my lap. Um, I got a tip from someone I worked with at the airport to, you know, check out this weird uh, registration page with all these strange companies that don't really exist. And from there, just <laughs> <laughs> followed up on that tip and it led down this crazy rabbit hole that's, uh, you know, I've been working on surveillance stories ever since for the next couple of years and I hope to continue to do so. But the technology changed. Uh, oh, yeah. Part of the part of the reason why the uh, uh, Occupy spawned so many citizen journalists, uh, and and we've had a, several of them on Voices over the years, uh, was because the mainstream media was not covering the story. Yep. That that nuanced stories once again were falling through the cracks. That that it seemed to be there was a uh, there was a Official story. I, I can't remember the name of what uh, they've got a term for that. That's, there, there are some topics 
that you're allowed to talk about. And then if you're outside of that, I'll try and find a link to that. Oh, like the company line, sort of? Yes, yes. And they've got a a fancy academic name for it. Uh, But but basically, there is a certain range of things that you can talk about. And then anything outside of that range of things is uh, verboten. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) We will not go there. So that is one of the nuanced changes that, that we're seeing. The technology has gotten a lot cheaper and better to work with as far as reporting. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, for my fossil story, when I started in radio to make an edit, you used to take a, a reel-to-reel tape recorder, <laughs> run it back and forth until you got the silent spot where you wanted it, marked it, cut it with a physical razor blade, <laughs> and scotch-taped it back together again. Uh, it was a hairball. <laughs> so using the, the modern technology, oh, yeah, this is way better than, than scotch tape is all I can tell you. Right. And it's funny distinction, too, you you made there, because uh, now with the, the way I edit North Star Radio Hour and I'll end up, you know, editing this show with you as well, I can pretty much do it all for my cell phone. And that was the case with <laughs> uh, with the Occupy, too. You know, Twitter, it's all mobile. Live streaming, you can get really good reception on a mobile device anywhere you go across the country. And I think because of the Unless, ease, of course, it's being jammed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I ran into that, too. But, no, it's just the democratization and the, the advances in the technology, I think, um, really have led into some of these mass movements we're seeing in the last few years, which is obviously great. But with that, it comes a lot of pitfalls, too. You know, I, I I know you are hesitant to, you know, give props to mainstream media, but there is a role for large news organizations in the country. And I think that part of the problem with everybody having access to broadcasting technology is that it does become difficult to sort out what is true and what information has been vetted. But overall, democratizing the media, I think, is obviously a great thing. There's an interesting uh link and we'll try and get it up there if we can put it in the right spot and if I remember to put it in uh, that's talking about a, a academic study about fake news mm-hmm. and basically the, the nuanced idea is oh it's bots, it's electronics, it's computer programs that are driving this and strangely enough it turns out no it's humans yep. that are driving the fake stories. Uh, part of that is it's not as easy to be a newsman as it might appear. There are skill sets. There are intuitive learning when you're being lied to, when you're not being lied to. Mm-hmm. How do you try to get that story vetted? Um, and hopefully over the next couple of years, we're going to see people get better and better and better at being able to take the things that they used to teach you in school or one of the advantages to the old mainstream. Uh, was that you had a whole newsroom of individuals that were teaching you how to do this, or you could use team coverage to be able to take a complex story and break it up into individual pieces. And I think we're going to have a link to an Intercept story coming up here real shortly where you'll see their team coverage, it looks like, on on the story. Yeah, and that that might be a good segue, too, because we're hitting almost the 16-minute mark. I don't know you divided this up with segments that you wanted to maintain, so maybe we should segue into that right now. Sounds good. Uh, can you kind of help us out on that? That was the Intercept article, and they were talking about uh, 
some of the different telephone uh, bugging technology, for, for, and I'm using an archaic term. <laughs> it's not bugging anymore. Eh, uh, oh, that, if it was only that easy. That term still works. I mean, the way that they refer to it in the law is pretty similar. So, yeah, these Terry's talking about the surveillance catalog that The Intercept published a while ago now. Um, and it, it goes into um, all these different devices, which are kind of colloquially, colloquially named Stingray. Um, but that's just one type. There are dozens now made by several different companies, including the Harris Corporation, um, even like Boeing and Raytheon have their fingers in this stuff. Uh, but it's it's kind of, you know, it depends on the mission that the law enforcement or the intelligence agency has, um, depending on which device they'll use. And they all have different capabilities. You know, some can detect multitudes of people's cell phone activities or they'll, they'll just target text messages. Um, some of them they just use to find where a phone is or, you know, find which phone in a crowd is the right target. And I'd, I'd encourage people to check that out. It's kind of scary, um, but it's very informative. And, uh, yeah, that's the surveillance catalog on The Intercept. Okay. And we'll, uh, like I said, we'll try and get the link up for that. Um, it was news to me how far it had come. I was aware from early Occupy, I was aware of, of uh, Stingray because uh, we we had reports year after year after year of people's telephones stopped working. Mm-hmm. Or right before there was going to be a police action, that was almost a dead giveaway that everybody's phones would uh, at the same time knock, be knocked out. Yeah. Uh, so the streamers are knocked out. You've got a news blackout as soon as that happens. Yeah, exactly. Um, have I, you seen that happen in, in any of the any of the stories you've been covering? Because you were out in the field more. I was doing it main from the desk. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, these are all anecdotal stories. It's really hard to prove. But we actually at a Black Lives Matter protest up here in North Minneapolis, we did get physical forensic evidence of an MC catcher being used at a protest, which I've never seen before. Um, but most of the time during Occupy, since it was still early on and we didn't know the names of a lot of these things or how common, uh, they were, you would, you know, you'd make a, you'd have, be on a march live streaming and then you'd get to like the Federal Reserve. That was the one that I had it at a multitude of times where you, you know, you're about a hundred feet away from the building and all of a sudden you lose all of your cell phone signal. And then, you know, you try and get it back up and it doesn't work. But as soon as the march leaves and you go back to, you know, the encampment, you get your signal back or your signal back. And part of that, too, is that when they're using these kind of jamming features on those devices, it really drains your battery, too, which was a huge complaint that a lot of protesters had. They'd always be like, oh, anytime I'm down at the People's Plaza, my phone's dead or I can't call or it's really hard to get on Twitter or anything like that. And it's anecdotal, but... It is significant still. And, you know, there's been a lot more research in the following years since those protests, and people have really started to nail it down. Um, even putting up heat maps in some towns where the police were, you know, concentrating their uses of these devices. Um, and I think in, I think I want to say it's in Tacoma, Washington, or maybe Seattle, they had it mounted on the uh, outside of the police station. And somebody just looking at images of the whole building deduced that it was a certain type of stingray uh, based on the wiring and the antennas that were on the building, which I think is pretty impressive sleuthing. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's a huge problem. And thankfully, people are starting to be more aware of it. And uh, we're even having counties and 
cities across the country start regulating the devices or at least, you know, demanding oversight of acquisition of the devices from things like Homeland Security grants or, you know, just demanding that the police give an inventory list. Um, California is big on that right now. They've got a couple different, I think they have at least three or four different cities that have regulations for these devices. Um, and, you know, St. Louis recently passed some sort of similar ordinance. Um, there's a little interest here in Minneapolis to get those regulations on the books, but we're pretty preoccupied with other matters at hand. Um, but yeah, there's, uh, the ACLU has a lot of different sort of templates that communities can use if they're interested in trying to get their representatives to enact these things. Uh, that again, I would encourage people to check that out. I think they refer to it as CCOPS. And now there's also CCOPS-M legislation. And the M adds militarized equipment like, you know, armored personnel carriers or grenade launchers, which uh, the Trump administration is trying to kind of funnel back down after the Obama administration sort of started to rein that in. Um, and yeah, that was a lot to throw out there, but check out the ACLU's work on that issue. <laughs> we'll see if we can get some links up for that ungodly set of acronyms we just put together right. on that. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I did. Uh, there's a lot of this technology has changed so quickly. Again, mm-hmm. I was aware of Stingray, but I had no idea all the different flavors that were oh, yeah. out there and some of the different things that they can do. Yeah, uh, drain the data off of your phone. Mm-hmm. That was that was news to me. Uh, again, and that's been documented in the Intercept story, I assume. Yes. Um, that was early on too. I don't know if they've updated it since with a lot of the new information that's come out, but it's a good starting point for researchers and people worried about this. Um, and it kind of, their focus was showing like, these are the types of, uh, MC catchers that we put on aircraft. If we need so-and-so information, um, these are the different functions. Like most of the time they're used for location seeking. Other times they actually get the content of cell phone calls and text messages. Um, but there's even more crazy capabilities like jamming, uh, which is used a lot less often. But, you know, people in Chicago report that a lot still. Um, and other protesters do as well. And I think the police are getting more aware that people know these things exist. So they're hiding them in the shadows a little bit more. But you still run into the jamming a, a bit. Um, and even we, like I said before, we have proof, forensic proof of that, um, from a protest here in North Minneapolis, where I, I literally installed this thing called Snoop Snitch on my phone. Just, you know, I thought I'd maybe get something. I didn't think it would really work, but I drove up to the protest, talked to some people, sat down by one of the fires. And when I was on the way home, I stopped and I looked at it and I actually registered a couple hits. And so I sent the data to an internal uh, tech editor named Jason that I work with on North Star Post and also people on the outside for sort of a double blind analysis. And everybody came back and said that this was pretty solid evidence that an MC catcher was being used. And uh, the setting was even kind of obvious. It's like, I can't remember the actual name of it, but it was basically just trying to get a list of all the phones in that area which is incredibly useful to any kind of intelligence gathering that the police might want. Because <laughs> if you see who's around, then you potentially in the future could see if they come back during certain protest actions 
or, you know, track those phones later on to see where those people live or who they're talking to or whatever. Um, and it's, I think it's just disturbing that the police have access to that in general. And the fact that you can't get a warrant to cover a group of people necessarily, especially if they're engaged in First Amendment activity. Um, so, yeah, the, the untargeted nature of this is also pretty alarming. I, I, I think the point that fits in here, too, is is they want your name. Um, there was a, a huge group of people during the protest of uh, Trump's inauguration. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they were facing some pretty serious legal trouble, uh, but when it finally got through court, when all was said and done, I think all of those cases have been dismissed, haven't they? Yeah, just I think just this week, even the last person I think just had yeah. their theirs dropped. Yeah, now, now that's the good news. Back to the nuanced side of the story. So, how much have they had to spend in legal fees to defend? <laughs> A lot, I'm uh, sure. What has been the silencing factor mm-hmm. of? Knowing that they were on the on the scopes, that that they were documented, that they were facing serious jail time. Yeah. Um, and and uh, again, part of the nuance again is is we've got the technology being improved so that protesters like you uh, could see that they were and document more important mm-hmm. that there was some kind of interference by police illegal interference by police. Um, and the technology is also changing on the government side to make it harder for us to be able to see what they're doing. Can you kind of real quick touch on this constantly evolving, we figure out how to do this, so they figure out how to do this, so that blah, 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 back and forth. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's definitely a good way to think of it as an arms race. You know, they, they develop these technologies and they literally, the FBI will, if they if they give the Minneapolis police, for example, one of these MC catchers, they'll force them to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And it's gotten to the point in the past where judges will literally drop cases and the prosecutors will dismiss charges um, in order to keep that device a secret. Um, so the fact that we don't even know about a lot of these things or who owns them or when they're being used and for what type of investigation it makes it hard for anybody doing a counter protest to even start, you know, researching it. Um, there's some groups are starting to figure out ways to counteract these, th- these things, you know, with encrypted phones and stuff like that. But that's, it's obviously the people who have all the money in the military technology are going to have a leg up every single time. So I'm a little worried to see what kind of the next generation of these devices will be. Um, and yeah, I mean, Snoop Snitch is great. Uh, like I mentioned, we should probably link to that too, if people want to download it. But even that, you have to be pretty tech savvy to get it to work. Uh, cause you have to have like root access to the baseband chip of the phone and you have to install it properly. Otherwise it'll never work. And then you have to have somebody that can interpret the results of the data. So it is, it's really complicated and I'm not surprised people are starting to um, well, not not starting to. They've been a little bit of aware of it for a while, but it's it's complicated, and I don't blame people for kind of not wanting to worry about it. Um, usually, when I bring up these surveillance things, people say something like, "Well, I don't really worry about it. It's not in my face." And I guess that is fair, because if you see the government in the form of a police officer beating someone in the street during an arrest, 
that's obviously an in-your-face government interaction. And you can determine, you know, pretty safely at the time or based on a video if it was right or wrong based off that interaction. But if they're, you know, surveilling your cell phone, you never know about it to begin with. So there's not that, you know, spark of outrage that is usually needed for protest to start. Um, and yeah, and that was a little long winded, but um, it's an arms race and there are smart people working on it, but there needs to be more uh, money and you know, more people need to start looking at these issues if we're going to start really getting our rights back. One of the uh, <laughs> one of the stories that we've covered since uh, Occupy America is what we used to be called before we were voices. Uh, Occupy is dead. How many times have we heard Occupy is dead? <laughs> uh, well, it's zombied back up, and right now, as we speak, from one end of the country to the other, there are occupying encampments out there again. Yep. And probably being surveilled and probably facing all of the issues that we're talking about right now. No doubt. So uh, what what do we have to share with them as far as, um, back to the nuance, this is, this is a horribly complex story <laughs> to try to break down in a one-hour show. Yeah, uh, but that's what we're trying to do, and we do have. We will try our best to have the links to back up what we're saying here, so that people can look at it and make their own decisions. Um, any guidance for those people as somebody's been around Occupy a long time? Well, I one thing I always want to have people understand is that you can't let this information fear you or make you so afraid that you won't act. Um, that's part of it. I mean, surveillance in its core is a method of social control. Um, like if people need to look at the panopticon, I can't remember who wrote it. It might've been Orwell, but the real basic rundown is that it's a prison with basically only one guard and all the, the, the cells are all facing each other. So the prison guard can watch everybody at the same time. And that's, you know, that it's kind of a good example because if you're, if you're afraid that every single action of yours is going to be scrutinized. You might not do something that you think you need to do. So that being said, maybe at some of these Occupy ICE protests, it would be smart for people to not bring a cell phone with them. Um, you can still get great pictures if you have a digital camera and you can still bring your sign and make your voice heard and, you know, have a huge crowd in front of the building. But, um, you know, allowing them to get access to your phone and then, technologically follow you home and learn more about you that's not something that i think is a great thing <laughs> to just voluntarily subject yourself to so maybe leave your cell phone at home um you know sometimes posting things on social media is a bad idea too but um it's it's really it's just make yourself aware and there are countermeasures you can take um just do a little bit of research a lot of the uh I'm seeing a lot of the uh, people that seem to be new to Occupy. Uh, they think it's they think it's strange that the Occupy encampments don't want people taking pictures there, and it really sits back with what you were just saying. They're making records of everybody who has mm. a bad attitude from their point of view. Yeah, uh, and you could be facing some pretty serious. Even if it never gets to court, how much money are you going to end up having to pay? to try to defend yourself against it. Mm -hmm. And that's that panopticon effect. It's, it's not so much that you are being surveilled, 
if the fact that you might be being yep. surveilled causes you to change your own behavior. Yeah, exactly. And that's what Panopticon is really all about, self-censorship. Yep. And uh, that extends um, all over cities now, too, with all these cell phone or these CCTV networks that have facial recognition built in. You know, they're they're not just enrolling mugshots. They're pulling people's driver's license pictures and social media posts into their databases. So even when people say stuff like, well, I haven't done anything wrong or I have nothing to hide, so I have nothing to fear. You wouldn't apply that standard to, you know, the First Amendment. You would only, you know, you wouldn't say, well, I have nothing important to say, so I don't care about the First Amendment. Why do you do that to the Fourth Amendment and your right to prevent searches and seizures? But that's another another topic for another day, probably. <laughs> uh, so where are we on time now? Uh, 32 minutes. Okay. Probably about time that we get into what I see as a technology jump that I was almost completely unaware of is the cell hawk. Uh, and, and you've been doing some work on that. Can you kind of give us a, an introduction to Cellhawk, please? Yes. So, yeah, there it goes again with the nuance. Um, this, it is technology, obviously, but it's not like a stingray where there's a physical box that the police would have to use. Uh, it's actually a web portal. So Hennepin County Sheriff's Office um, uses it up here. Excuse me. And basically they have a subscription that I think they pay $4,000 a year. Maybe that might be wrong given that the data I have is a couple years old, but they log into this thing and it, it's basically just a data processing machine. Um, the main thing that they advertise uh, that it, it's good for is cell phone uh, call detail records. And people know the term metadata. That's pretty much what that is. So whatever phone called phone B at this time, and they talked for this long, and some other similar details. But Cellhawk is able to process all sorts of other data, um, even Uber and Lyft records, and um, you know location data is obviously a big one. And the, the main thing that they were advertised uh, that it helps police and inv intelligence agencies investigate is just that back in the day, if you know the sheriff here wanted to investigate a bank robbery, he would get a subpoena issued to AT&T or Verizon, and they would come back with these giant spreadsheets of all these metadata points. And the intelligence analysts would have to map that out by hand. And obviously, that would take a long time because you have to cross-reference the information onto a map and then suss out all the relevant data. So in their advertisement, let me actually pull it up exactly here. Um, they say that mapping out one call by hand or one cell phone record by hand would take 20 minutes. And in that same time, Cellhawk would have done over 4,000 points. So, hmm. yeah, so they can map out a one cell phone's activity in 20 minutes, a whole year of cell phone activity in 20 minutes, I should say. And obviously, when you have that uh, speed and ease of use, you're going to rely on it more. So... It's a troubling technology, and it's really widespread across the country. I was kind of surprised. Um, Hawk Analytics is the manufacturer, and they're Dallas-based with less than 10 employees. Uh, so it's a really lean company, and they, uh, you know, their, their CEO and their founder used to work for, I think it was AT&T. Um, so he's got a lot of inside information on how this stuff works, and that obviously led him to a pretty profitable business. Do uh, 
what what are the ramifications here of, of uh, we've covered over the years that the fusion centers mm-hmm. is the is the point where uh not just the local cops or even uh federal cops or DHS but also military is pulling in information Mm-hmm. Um, can you can you kind of give us a real quick overview of do, is this something you would suspect would be in one of the Lord knows how many fusion centers there are out there. There were at least two showing at Ferguson, population twenty thousand. Yeah, and that was four years ago. Oh, uh, where where are we now? Yeah, it, it definitely is up here in Minneapolis. Um, it's run out of the Criminal Intelligence Sharing Analysis Unit which is a fancy acronym for a fusion center that the sheriff uses. Um, and by my account, I think there are three fusion centers in the Twin Cities alone. But yeah, from, from the literature and uh, the testimonials and other documents I found, most of the time it is done at the fusion centers because uh, that's sort of where the criminal intelligence analysts are um, housed and where they do their work on a day-to-day basis. But it really... I mean, given that it's just a web portal, it can be used anywhere there's a computer. Um, I've seen pretty small police agencies in rural areas that have this. Um, And from what I can tell, they mostly use it for pretty serious crimes. But given, again, that it was a secret technology and it's never really been talked about, um, except for in really, really, really limited areas, we don't know exactly what they're using it for. And I don't necessarily trust my sheriff to not use it on people at protests that should be pre- protected under the First Amendment. And, you know, in in their video, which we should link to as well, you can see that when the, he'll plug in one cell phone number and then in about a millisecond, it pops up with all the cell phones that that device talked to in the given time range. So mm. just think about what that could do for, you know, an Occupy protest. You You figure out the cell phone number of one protester plug that in and all of a sudden you see everybody he's talking to and then you get exponentially more information the more numbers you put into it so you could really see who are the leaders Um, you could network map the entire group and see which key people you need to surveil the most or you know lord knows target for arrest or whatever Um, and it's it's really powerful i mean just speeding up all these police processes is is something that i think people need to really consider um, and potentially consider regulating or even demanding that their usage be limited. That's what we have a constitution to do. Yeah, what's left of it. Uh, well, it's still there, but we're just not making it work. Yeah, that's and true. Hopefully we can start to begin to get some ideas towards the end of this show about not just talking about what they're doing to us, but to make them begin to think about what we're going to do with, with them. Yeah, uh, if they continue to break the law, because a lot of these cases they're breaking the law. Mm-hmm. Am I misinterpreting that, or? Uh no, I mean that that's a good nuance point to get into too. I mean, um, maybe well we we are at about forty minutes, so why not? But here in in Minnesota again, there's uh, two competing statutes, um, and I, I spoke with Ben Feist, who is the legislative director of the ACLU of Minnesota. Um, and he he confirmed this with me. I suspected it. But what's happening is that there's a pretty strong law on the books that requires uh, something called a tracking warrant. And so the standard is probable cause, which means that, you know, you have you have to say that this information is materially relevant to a case. 
Um, and also in that law, it says that if you need, if you do apply for a tracking warrant and you use it on a person's cell phone, they have to get notification within 90 days that they were surveilled. And that hasn't happened at all. It, and this has been on the books since I think 2014. So obviously they've been using the device, but they're using a different legal standard, which is simply an administrative subpoena. And the cell phone companies are always extremely willing to comply with those subpoenas so long as you fill out the form correctly. Um, and, you know, officer, whatever, Joe Schmo, he can even do that from his squad car. It's just a template. You know, it says like, what's your name? What department are you with? Um, what is this relevant for? And what's the cell phone number? And then he'll email that to AT&T and somebody will get back to him within, you know, probably pretty quick. I bet even an hour or so with all the data that they need. So the nuance here is that there's a law that was put in place specifically to protect people's real time and historic location data, but they're choosing not to follow that law because they know that there's another weaker standard that they can lean on. And I would assume probably that this is being <laughs> similarly replicated across other cities and counties across the U.S. You know, anytime that the police have some sort of tool, they're going to use it. So it's up to us to provide oversight and accountability and expose what's going on. Um, and, you know, you're taking it's not necessarily that you're taking tools away from the cops so that their job's more difficult. You're simply protecting our rights. And a lot of people get those things confused. <laughs> That's a nuance again, mm -hmm. that, that there will that the standard reaction you'll get from people. Uh, on one side is, um, so you're just saying let the criminals have free reign. Uh, that would be on one side of an oversimplification. And the other side of the, of the nuanced story is, uh, well, the criminals may not be the people you think they are. They may be wearing a badge. Right. Um, are there, is ACLU actually trying to do anything that would put teeth in a person who's supposed to be an officer of the court breaking the law that you're seeing. Yeah, they, they're really good. I mean, their resources are limited, obviously. And unfortunately, with the politics of the Minnesota legislature last session, not a lot of stuff got done because <laughs> the, uh, the Republican-controlled House um, kind of jammed all of the bills into the last week and a half. And the governor's a Democrat, and he said specifically that he was going to veto you know, X, Y, Z, um, and the Republicans heard that and just put everything into those bills anyway. So there, after the 2016 election, the ACLU was sort of put on the defensive instead of on the attack. So we're going to have to wait a little while before we get some more teeth um, into these protections. But they're working on it. Um, I have faith that they'll do a great job. <laughs> but my my job right now is just to continue exposing the threat that this technology poses which is pretty vast, I, I got to say. Hopefully, if there is an effort to put some teeth in this, then part of also what we can try to do is start trying to lay the groundwork for documentation that mm -hmm. can be used uh, somewhere up the line in case there is a lawsuit against the individuals who are breaking the law, mm -hmm. whether they're wearing a badge or not. Oh, absolutely. And th there's a good example of that here, too, where, um, you know, your driver's license database, it has your, your name and your picture and your home address. 
uh, there was a TV news reporter for the Fox affiliate who just won some nearly $200,000 uh, because the police continuously looked up her name and her picture into their little DVS um, license information system. So it, it goes to show you that, you know, if they have a tool in front of them, there will be abuse at some level. And it's only a matter of time and it's only a matter of if we'll figure it out. Um, but yeah, any, anytime there's something like this in front of them, it's going to be used and abused, unfortunately. But accountability and bringing lawsuits, that's, it's tricky because, you know, for, I'm sitting here and if I didn't know about this stuff, I would never think to ask, you know, hey, who's been looking at my license picture? I wouldn't even know if, if that was something I could do. So you have to kind of be aware and you have to be tipped off a lot of the times. So it, it's difficult to bring accountability to the lawbreakers when they're the ones that are supposed to uphold the law. There's an, an, another nuance to this. Uh, what uh, we've been talking about, uh, the cell phone technology, uh, but those your, your original story was when you broke FBI spy sky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, with, uh, that's a hard one to say, by the way. I usually manage to trip over that one. I think <laughs> I actually got, got that one out for a change. Uh, <laughs> but it's not just telephones that's being monitored. When those Correct. planes are up there, they are also looking at a, a multispectral analysis. Can you give us a real quick look at what are some of the things that might be being done uh, with multispectral. Yeah, um, and originally that wasn't even a term I was aware of. Um, as far as I know for the FBI, they're still using mostly visual intelligence, um, sort of similar to helicopter cam, which everybody's seen at this point, but also infrared. Um, and yeah, like like you said, multispectral imaging, that's um, more alarming, I think, because our eyes see, you know, the the basic primary colors from the rainbow, but there's so much more going on on the spectrum. Um, and from the documents I've seen, the Civil Air Patrol seems to be experimenting with multispectral imaging the most, and they're an auxiliary unit of the Air Force, so they have a lot of resources, and obviously they're pretty cozy with defense contractors and things. Uh, but multispectral imaging, um, it's sort of advertised to assist with missing persons investigations, um, because you can fly a plane really, really high up and then use one of these lenses to get a really detailed image of all the different, like, radiation coming up from the ground. So you're able to pinpoint really, really precise things from a high altitude. Um, and I, I, again, I haven't really seen the FBI use that from any FOIA documents. They're mostly using, you know, wide area type of stuff, which is scary by itself. Uh, you're able to monitor a medium-sized city with just a, a Cessna, which is a, l- a little single-engine plane, um, and see all, like, the moving cars and people walking around and even birds and things with, you know, dozens of square miles. Um, and, yeah, multispectral imaging would be the next generation of that. Um, so that'll probably be on the spy planes in the next, like, five years. And that, that part of that spectrum is radio communications. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of that is heat. Part of that is visual. Um, there's a there's a whole host of things in there, and 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 then once again with nuance, as if this wasn't complicated enough. Um, when when they're using this against people who are not breaking the law, uh, who are 
protesting, which is their right under the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, what about false positives? Are you seeing any kind of information about this isn't an infallible technology that does make mistakes, I'm sure, or at least the interpretation of the information can be mistaken. Uh, any thoughts on uh, that side of this issue? Because the standard point here that people want to duck down a, and, and not look at this being the kind of problem it is, is, well, if I'm not breaking the law, I don't have anything to worry about. Well, that is incorrect. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you may get framed. Yeah. No, that's that's absolutely true, and I I don't have any specific cases. We'll probably hear about those in future court battles, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's always a chance of an analyst or even the technology misidentifying someone. Um, like with facial recognition technology, they're they're building it mostly based off of white male faces. So we're already hearing people, especially like women of color, being misidentified um, under facial recognition technology. And, you know, you, when Silicon Valley is primarily white and male, that's going to be a problem, obviously. Or, you know, things like threat scoring, which is another thing to throw out here kind of at the tail end of the show. But they're, they'll take information based off your demographics, your social media posts, and then apply algorithms to it to try and predict if you will be a criminal in the future. And obviously, <laughs> lo and behold, it's identifying people of color as future criminal suspects. So I, I hope this is right. I think it was Chicago. They had a problem where police would just be showing up at people's doors. And like, you know, it's like a house call. We're just checking in on you. And they wouldn't tell them why or what specifically was going on. But they were getting information from threat scores, which it's like minority report. These people haven't committed a crime yet. You just think that they might in the future based off of something that's potentially racially motivated um, and, you know, other motivations as well. But I think that's creepy. And I, I don't like seeing my country go down that path. Uh, predictive policing it, mm-hmm. it also dovetails into that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, also, uh, we've got one of the earliest places that this story broke as far as multispectral uh, actually, that wasn't multispectral. That was just straight visual. But uh, Eyes Over Compton was mm-hmm. one of the first places we covered anything about it. <clears throat> and, and can you real quick give us a, a an overview of what's capable that was released with the Eyes Over Compton story, where they can actually run back in backwards in time? And- oh, yeah. That's that goes hand in hand with the wide area aerial surveillance stuff. Yeah. Um, yes. There's a, it's a really good, if people like podcasts, I hope they do if they're listening to this, um, Radio Lab did a really good one years ago um, about, I can't remember the name of it. It might've actually been Eyes in the Sky, but that was exactly it. This was a private company that was testing a plane over Dayton, Ohio, um, but also border towns on the US-Mexico border. And that's, that's what they would do. They developed this technology over, I think it was Afghanistan, but also Iraq to, you know, fly a plane over an area for hours and hours and hours to get a ton of video uh, footage. And then when a car bomb went off, they would look and see who was in that area for the hours before it, and then literally follow that car back to where the safe house was. And so, you know, like any military technology, that always comes home and is used domestically, unfortunately. And so this company was basically selling that to law enforcement agencies 
Um, and the main area they were testing it was Dayton, Ohio. So they would get reports of like a, a robbery or a carjacking and do the same thing. You know, watch everybody in the area at the time of the crime and then literally just mark on the screen with some kind of like MS. It, it, looks, it looks like MS paint drawings, but they'll just follow the car back to where they originated. And then the the police will just show up there and arrest the person. Um, and so that brings into so many questions about the rule of law. Innocent until proven guilty. Is it OK to watch people and just wait for them to commit a crime? as if they were suspects to begin with before they even did anything wrong. And I I don't think that's right. And I don't think that the framers of the Constitution would be okay with that type of surveillance. Um, so then obviously, like all this stuff, when there's a controversy, they just spin it so that they're going to say, oh, but we'll use it to find drug traffickers or missing children or this and that. And then it becomes easier for the people to digest and accept it. But really, if you just take a simplistic view of things, you're you're really surrendering a lot of your rights. Back to nuance again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, to take a look at, at uh, maybe it's not just as simple as, as it's being claimed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, what are we looking like on time here? Uh, just over 53. Okay, so we're really kind of having to caper this thing on down. Yeah, that's why I'm trying um, to talk fast. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what have we still not what do we need to cover here in the last seven minutes oh boy um that's a good question <laughs> <laughs> well i guess i, I don't know i mean what if <laughs> maybe we could start directing people to the right places and i could read off some of the aclu's model legislation <laughs> i don't know there is a model leg- legislation that is being framed and and again each of the 50 states Mm-hmm. We'll have we'll have slightly different uh, regulations and stuff. Plus, also there's federal. Uh, so add in all of that on top of it. Yeah. Nuance. Um, what do you? <clears throat> we always try to learn. Helplessness is the part of the <laughs> bad guys' toolbox right here. They want us to think that resistance is futile, mm-hmm. uh, and it is not. Uh, so let's uh, let's try to close on what do you see as the optimistic side of all of this? Well, I mean, the Supreme Court's been in the news for, I, I would say, bad reasons. But one glimmer of hope that came out recently was that uh, I, in order to access historic cell phone, um, cell phone GPS records, you now need to have a warrant. And that came from the federal Supreme Court. So that should soon start applying everywhere. Um, and it, it has some weird stipulations, like it's only applies if it was uh, six days or more, I believe, if you're looking further than six days. And, uh, you know, the news networks are still going through all the information and the, and the opinions to try and figure out how this will apply. But that was a glimmer of hope. So there isn't uh, it isn't all bad news all the time. Um, but other than that, I mean. I think people, if they start researching it, you can find pretty easy things to do to protect your privacy specifically. And also, there are lots of groups around the country like Restore the Fourth that are still around. Um, A lot of these groups launched after Edward Snowden broke the news in 2013. Uh, But even in Minneapolis here, Restore the Fourth MN is uh, having meetings and talking to legislatures and city council people about you know, potentially in, enacting some of these uh, legislative measures that will protect our liberties. 
Um, but yeah, even even things like Signal for texting and calls, that's a end-to-end encrypted. So you'll know if somebody is spying on you because the call won't go through. Um, and the text messages will be secure because you have uh, encryption from your phone to the person you're talking with. Uh, so there there are things, and a lot of them are pretty easy. It just takes a little bit of time and effort. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's not all doom and gloom all the time. You just have to look into it and start making moves. Nope. Still there? I'm still here. I had the mute button on. Oh. <laughs> <clears throat> on the uh, on these last couple minutes, uh, India, uh, I'm going to mispronounce it, Adhar or something like that, where they were not only using the spying information, but they were using it against you economically, mm. your ability to use it for uh, purchasing. Um, these are things that are going to have to be acted on because in, when you take it out to the limits, and it is being taken to the limits, um, there is no innocent or guilty. Everybody is going to be affected by this. Oh, yeah. Um, in, in the last couple minutes here, what, uh, what, what do you see? Uh, um yeah i I think one thing that people can do is uh like uh, i i did recently and it might be a fun thing to talk to you about after the show but you can request from your local law enforcement all the times that they searched your name or your driver's license number or your license plate number in their um driver vehicle service database and they have to return to you. I believe most states have a statute. It's probably like 30 days. Um, they have to tell you the agency that looked you up and um, some details related to the search, like what they were specifically looking for. And my, I got a stack of papers back that was thick, like probably two inches high of paper with all these lookups. Um, I, I think mine started in 2012, but for whatever reason, they only gave me up until 2016. And the very last lookup was from uh, the FBI of Minneapolis. So that was kind of concerning, and I need to figure out what's going on with that. But, you know, just simple things like that that people can do to start, you know, figuring out what's really going on. <laughs> I'm and always in favor of that. Yes, exactly. So that somewhere up the line, when <clears throat> when there are teeth in the law, uh, that something can actually be done about this and that the people that are breaking the law, whether they're wearing a badge or not, need to start thinking about you're not hiding. Mm-hmm. There is there is a clear track back. Um, at some point, uh, you're not anonymous uh, if if you're breaking the law. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, that's for the people who are using badges who are breaking the law that I'm referring to here. Oh, yeah. Um, how close are we? Uh, just past 59 minutes. Okay. Well, I would say this was uh, this was a simulcast experiment, the second <laughs> one in this month, and I'm uh, hoping it won't be the last. Hopefully, we'll begin to get an idea how to do this more efficiently. Uh, and this is part of the other defense that we have. Ben Franklin used to say, "We we've got to all hang together." Well, most certainly all hang separately. <laughs> uh, so this is an effort to make sure that as, as journalists that are targeted, targeted 
um, we need to group up. We need to work with each other. At this point, uh, Voices is a sister station to North Star Post and to MCSC uh, networks. Um, and this is a, a trend that the other people in independent communications need to maybe start thinking about working towards, hopefully. Agreed. Um, uh, that's it from us at Voices. And uh, it's been great working with you, and hopefully we'll all be working together more often and quite frequently. <laughs>